We study his word together. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to take, invite you to take them and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. This will be our final message um, in this chapter, which looking back, almost, almost three months in the 8th chapter of Romans. There is much here. Welcome, welcome to every single one of you. It is great to be in the house of the Lord together. If you get opportunity today, make sure that you stop and thank the Hamilton family. This is Pastor Josh's final Sunday with us. I am grateful. Over five years ago when Josh came and we were still meeting in the schoolhouse, that he was influential, key in leading a team uh, in transition, much of the beauty that you see around you here uh, has Josh's fingerprints all over it. And we are grateful for his sacrifice and his faithful years of service. Continue to pray for Josh and Kristen, the kids, um, in transition at this time. This text, there is, there is, there is much here. And with much of life, we look at things and we're like, not quite sure how to handle it. There's one thing that we know that we can do, and that is go to the Lord in prayer and ask for help and ask for guidance. Not just in the understanding and the applying of God's word to our lives, but for the understanding of kind of life around us. So on that thought, would you bow your heads and pray with me as we dive into this text? Would you pray? Father, we are so thankful for who you are. We're so grateful for your goodness to us, your patience and your grace. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this weekend that as a nation, we were able to step back and remember those who sacrificed for our freedoms. Oftentimes, we take those things for granted. We can easily forget. We pray, Lord, that we would hold tight to the heritage that we've been given, the blessings and common graces that surround us. But Father, we're also mindful of the greatest sacrifice, and that is the offering of your own son, Jesus, to die on our behalf. Father, we thank you that we come to you, we're able to come to you in the name of Jesus and as a result of the work that he accomplished on the cross and in the tomb and as we have now your word open before us and Lord, we're not entirely sure how, how can we address such incredible truth. I ask for your help this morning. I pray, Lord, for... Um, Many in our body, I just pray, Lord, for comfort and strength. We thank you, Lord, that um, you bless us with the Hamilton family, and we just pray, Lord, for blessings upon Josh and Kristen and the kids. In transition, we just pray, Lord, that you guide them and lead them. Thank you, Lord, for every, everyone who continues to serve faithfully. We just pray, Lord, that as we go into a season of togetherness, that we would see the importance of encouraging and drawing others in and drawing others close. Father, we are reminded 
this morning that nothing will separate us from your love. And I pray, Lord, that we would live like that in our love towards one another, reflection of your love toward us. I ask for help this morning. Guide my words, my mouth, my mind. May everything that is said and done be for your glory. May we together hear a word from you this morning. We ask this in the amazing and wonderful and matchless name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. And amen. I want you to kind of see it like this to start. We we talk about the first chapter, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. We kind of call it a mountaintop where we know that the righteous shall live by faith. Now, Now that concept, that doctrine is an absolute foundation of what we believe, of our own doctrine. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. So think of that mountaintop of Romans chapter 1 to what we have now, in a sense, another mountaintop in Romans chapter 8. The latter portion we saw last week, what? In verses 29 and 30, to those whom he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. It's called the golden chain of salvation. From mountaintop to mountaintop, it has been a constant, we could call, panoramic view of theological beauty and blessing. But it's that, it's that in-between of us having to learn all the way through. Years ago, when we were living up in Maine, I took a group of students, junior high students. This is a what not to do, okay? Just a reminder. I took a group, a large group of junior high students to climb Mount Katahdin, Baxter State Park. That's the, um, that's the northernmost um, peak of the Appalachian Trail. So I took a group of students, and I didn't realize it was an 11-mile hike. And there were like 11, 12, 13-year-old kids, and they had backpacks. I have no idea. I, at some point, they were like staggering under the weight. And I'm like, what do you, what do you have in your, in your backpacks? Some of the girls had brought, like, uh, in-style fashion magazines. Like, just, just a little reading on the side. They had whole cans of SpaghettiOs and boxes of macaroni and cheese. I have no idea what we'd ever do with this. We get up to the top in July, and there's snow flurries. What's interesting is that there's one peak here at the top of Katahdin, but then there's actually a second peak Romans 1, Romans 8. And in between the two of them is a trail. It's referred to as Knife's Edge. About some places it's as narrow as four feet and it drops up to 2,000 feet on either side. And we have these little kids with like SpaghettiOs in their backpacks saying, let's go. And I'm like, no, no. No, we're going home. (laughs) You know, at some level to this day, I still regret that decision. How many many times do you get an opportunity to to traverse and and to, to hike knife's edge, the highest point? And at some level, I think... We miss the view. The, the, the best view was, was on, that, on that edge. 
And I kind of see right here, as we are going from mountain point to mountain point, mountain top to mountain top, in a sense, there's this really, really important, deep theological truth for us. That we can't just kind of like, somebody said earlier, we can't just like hear teaching and move on. Like, this is what God has for us to see all. And, and in light of that truth, in, in light of that beauty and splendor, there is now, at the conclusion of Romans chapter 8, a celebratory passage. There's still more that describes for us how there is nothing. There's, there's nothing. There's, there's, there's not one thing. And there's, there's no one. Who can ever or will ever separate us from the love of our heavenly Father. Love what? And the eternal intent that God, the author of love, God ordained. When the subject today of love itself is under grave attack. I don't know if you've noticed a very subtle kind of change in marriage vows today. You've been to a wedding recently. It happens oftentimes that little phrase, as long as you both shall live, is now being changed to as long as you both shall love. Thankfully, that is not the case. That is not the case with God. There is no ending. There is no separating our Heavenly Father's love. This morning, my goal is this. Our objective is this. Think on that truth just ponder that truth go with me the last few verses of Romans chapter 8 we pick it up in verse 31 the words will be in front of you reading from the ESV it says this what what then shall we say to these things all that we have heard from Romans 1 through Romans 8 what do we say to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Is it tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No, in, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Someone said, all you have to do, Pastor Tim, is read that passage and sit down. And there's great truth to that. But God has not afforded us that luxury this morning, sorry. 
I want you to count. There, there's a lot. We begin to look at this whenever we kind of exegete a, a text. Look at the question marks. I'll, I'll save you the, the, the circling of question marks. There's eight of them. Eight questions in this text. Actually, the, the eight questions break into four major categories. For major questions. Who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against us? Who will condemn us? And who can separate us? Four different questions with four identical answers, which is very unique. Four different questions, but the answers are all the same. Nothing, nothing, no one, no one, nobody. The love of God is so great. It's what I call this morning beyond measure. Put the measuring stick away on this one. Number one, no one can be against you. You sitting there this morning, you have your, your story. I trust that there's a time that you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, maybe today will be, and I trust will be this day of salvation. Your story, you. No one can be against you. It's a Beautiful truth in light of the very descriptive state of rebellion that we began in, of the condition of mankind in the sight or presence of a holy God. What well, we looked at the sinful plight of mankind. Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Yet what? God is for us. David, the shepherd boy, turned king. David, the author of Psalm 56, clearly attests to this when he writes this, and I quote, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Verse 9. Now notice what David says. He doesn't say that you're not going to have any enemies. As a matter of fact, he actually acknowledges the fact there is still enemies. So you're like, wait a minute, no one's against me, but we've got enemies. He didn't say we'll have no enemies. As a matter of fact, there will be many people that oppose you and oppose your belief. We believe that a man is born a man and a woman is born a woman. And you can't traverse that. We believe that marriage is reserved between a man and a woman. You can't change that. We believe that life begins at the very moment of conception and there's a sacredness and a sanctity to that. And we can't change that. We will have those that oppose us just like Jesus was opposed, just like Jesus told us we will be opposed. But ultimately what? Hold on to this. Even in the midst of that, God... God, creator, sustainer, sovereign ruler over everything and everyone is for you. You, just sitting in that chair this morning. God is for us. And the rest of this entire chapter speaks of this. That's what we talked about, the fact that we, we focus on the threat, don't we? Like, this doesn't make sense. Rather than stepping back and seeing the tapestry, the beautiful tapestry that God is weaving. That even in the midst of opposition... God's clock is different than our clock. God's calendar is different. God thinks in eternity and we think in the temporal. And we know that, we know, we know when, when we hear this phrase, God is for us, we also know that there's people that take that, that line and totally distort it and twist it. God is for us. So let's bring the snake up here and let's charm the snake. 
And cults are actually birthed out of just foolishness. God is for us. People blow themselves up because God is for us. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the fact the truth is no wrong act can ever or should ever deter a Christian from claiming this wonderful promise. But we still ask the question, how do we know it? Okay, God is for us. How do we know? I want to know that God is for us. The answer is in verse 32. Something happened. An event in history was unfurled. Something real, once and for all, that offers proof for us that God is with us and for us. What happened? Just look at the cross. God did not spare his own son so that you and I would be spared. Let me repeat that. God did not spare his own son so that you would be spared. It's Memorial Weekend, Memorial Day weekend. A time that we just step back and remember those who have fallen. It's a sacrifice. My, my father, I never knew my grandfather, Grandpa Boger, because my dad was two years old. Grandpa was killed in the Battle of the Bulge, December 1944 in Belgium. And although I didn't have a personal relationship with him, at some level I grew up with this idea that Grandpa Boger was a hero. He's my hero. And I enjoy the life today because of men and women like Grandpa Boger. I didn't know him. But a sacrifice was made for us. God offered his own son. He didn't spare his own son to be a sacrifice. You and I deserve to die on a cross for our wretchedness and our sinfulness. But God offered his own son to be a sacrifice. He spared his own son so that we could be spared. Think of this. The biggest, the biggest thing the biggest obstacle, the biggest problem that we could ever think of for a moment has been taken care of. Sin and death has been taken care of. Why is it that you and I sweat the small stuff every day? I just don't, this doesn't look good. This doesn't look good. I don't like the way this is lining up. Making me wear a mask in Walmart. I can't believe he's not wearing a mask. Like, like we sweat the small stuff all over the place. Like, I don't know, this, this isn't straight line. I like straight lines. No, the biggest obstacle, the biggest problem, the curse in all of life, sin and death, has been taken care of. Why is it that we silly our minds with the trivial? We begin what? We come to church with purpose, with reason. So we focus on God first and foremost and what he has done for us. If God put forth his own beloved son, you can be assured of this. He will see to it that you are safe in the ongoing work of salvation. It says what no one will ever take you out of my father's hand. And you're sitting here, but you don't, you don't know my story, Pastor Tim. Like, it's pretty bad back there. No. 
You, you don't focus on that. Matter of fact, that's our second point. No one can bring a charge against you. So the question is, who, who is it? Who out there could, could bring a charge, like point a bony finger in your face? Once again, the answer is the same. There's, in a sense, what? Some redundancy here. Who can bring a charge? Nobody. Yeah, but there must be somebody who could bring a charge. No, no, there is no one. Again, you hear the, the judicial language that is used here. If God has chosen you for known, called, justified, thus what? He has pardoned you from your crime of sin through the payment of his own son's sinless sacrifice on the cross, then who is it that's going to point at you, charge you? The case is closed, declared righteous. You may go free. The sacrifice has been made. Now, with that knowledge, what, what, should, what should happen? There, there ought to be just what? There ought to just be a sigh of relief, just a settledness. Like the world's crazy and turned upside down. It's churning every moment. And there should be to what? Grace and calm knowing that we just move with a settledness and a rest. This means with any and all future judgment. Because we're like, okay, so nobody can condemn us now. But you know it's coming. Like you know that there's this time. Romans 14 speaks about it. We're going to stand before Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, believers, believers, we're going to be before the Bema seat. There's a splendid scene. And for some reason, even today, we fret and worry over that. You ever fear like, it would be wonderful if we were with the Lord in heaven. But before then, I'm going to stand before the Lord. And he's like, oh man. Like he's probably going to see this. He's probably going to bring this up, Right? So in a sense, we live even, even before what the beam is. We still live with this idea of fear like, oh no. People, let me remind you up there is nothing to fear. When you stand what? In Christ. Yes, we are all held accountable for what we do and what we don't do. But you're held accountable to a loving, gracious, heavenly Father who receives you with a love. That nothing separates. Who can bring a charge against you? Breathe deep, no one. Who, who will condemn you? No, no one. No one will condemn you. Very similar, again, to the previous question. Bring a charge, condemn. Like, what's the difference here? But this has a more specific, what I would say, a Christ-centered response so when we rest in the truth no one can bring a charge against us we now build out on that with this latter wonderful promise who will condemn you no one when what the reality is the problem is this who's the who's the one in your life who condemns you more than anyone else you do Every day you stand in front of the mirror and you're like, mm, I tried. And at some level, we condemn ourselves. And the good news of this text is what? 
no, 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 you are not to do that. No one condemns us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, and we know that happens, when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So when we stand before the mirror, we're like, yeah, this is just not, this is just not right. This is not perfect. I'm supposed to be perfect. I'm supposed to be holy. No, wait a minute. The truth is what God knows. We condemn ourselves, but there's also, there's also someone else out there. It seems to be constantly just what? Condemning us, or we could say accusing us. And we know that the enemy, Satan, is relentless. Trying to accuse us. Revelation chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So everything is being set up. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before God, this text is speaking about the fact that if you don't condemn yourself, then there's actually someone else who's trying to accuse you of something. And that's the enemy, Satan himself. He's referred to as the accuser. And we know the truth is that he will be cast down. So you hear lies from the enemy saying, yeah, you really aren't. You, you're not even be in church today because you know what you thought about this week. You know the fears that you had and the struggles that you've gone through. And so if we don't condemn ourselves, then what? Then the enemy accuses us or tries to condemn us. Therefore, moments in texts like this always, always, always wake up every day amazed at this. Jesus has died for us. Jesus died for the sins that would have condemned us. And more than that, what is this text talking about? It doesn't just focus on the cross. Yes, we need to focus on the cross, but, but it expands that. If you're to be amazed at the fact that Jesus has died for us, be marveled at the wonderful truth that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, we, we know what happened. We can go back to the Gospels. There was a crooked court that accused Jesus. Corrupt. There was a shouting crowd, spitting and throwing rocks, saying what? Crucify him. There's a shouting crowd that was condemning. But God raised, vindicated his own son from the dead. Therefore what? The empty tomb said, to the accuser, you're wrong, Satan. Shut your mouth. There's nothing to condemn here. There's nothing to accuse here. You're wrong, crowd of accusers. Because what? The resurrection proved that God the Father accepted God the Son's sacrifice. And now, at this moment, if you are in Christ, then what? Christ's victory is your victory. Go all the way back to the very first verse of this chapter. There is what? Therefore, now, present tense, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Douglas Moo, author of the letter of 
Romans, yes, and it's correct. His name is Mu, I double-checked, as in Mu. He writes this, with such a defense attorney, it is no wonder the prosecution loses its case. Who's our defense? Who's standing up on our behalf and says, yeah, I've taken this? The prosecution loses. I'm, I'm reminded here of a very dark scene. John chapter 17. The Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying for you. Right here in this particular text, in verse 34, the, the Holy Spirit gives to the Apostle Paul the word what? Interceding for us. So, so what is happening here? That Jesus Christ who is seated on the right hand of the throne of God the Father, is interceding for us. Our our friend is himself the judge. He's there for us, and he's not like unconcerned about your worries. Okay, he's not unconcerned, like, yeah, there's that guy again. No, no, no. He's not forgetful about us. He is making intercession for us. And I I think we maneuver our way through life and we forget that. Great old Scottish preacher's name was Robert Murray McShane. He said this and I quote, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Isn't that, isn't that the way that we work? Like, if I could just, Jesus, if you were just like a little bit closer and you were sitting over there and I could hear you, I'm good to go. But distance makes no difference. He's praying for you. Interceding. Sometimes what groans that we, we can't even articulate or, or put into words in our prayers that Jesus Christ hears them and intercedes on our behalf before his heavenly father be encouraged with the fact there is no one who will condemn you and it culminates here we're, we're like we, we see the top of the mountain and now we kind of get to the last little little peak here what, what is this no one will ever separate you Paul's, Paul's question, so who is it? Who's out there that will separate us from the love of Christ? Again, it's answered exactly like every other question. No one, nobody. What's interesting here is that he actually spends twice the amount of time on it. But why, why can't he just say, no one End chapter, chapter 9 begins, we have four weeks outside, we have the summer, and then we'll pick it up. Like, why is it that he spends so much time here on, on this one particular question? Nothing will separate us. Reason is, is that Paul is going after more than just the right answer. And this is what I love. This is, this is the brilliance of our dear brother, the Apostle Paul. He's going after more than just the right answer. The Apostle Paul doesn't want us to hear words. You know, like you hear words, it happens all the time. You hear words and it kind of like, they drift off, they disappear. They hit our ears and like they fall. 
The Apostle Paul does not want our ears to hear words that then fall away or drift away. The Holy Spirit is using, is speaking through the Apostle Paul, and he's going after something more than the right answer. You know what he's going after? He's going after our heart. This text cuts to the heart. Whenever you speak about the subject of love, what? It's a heart issue. Honey, I'll be home soon. I love you. And what happens when you do this and you text the word love? What happens? Hearts pop up all over the place. Like, how did you know? What a great idea. Heart. And there's some kind of a connection, some kind of a connotation here between hearts and love. When we talk about the subject of love, let it cut to the very depths, deepest recesses of your heart. Since we know that God is for us, we will never be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And now to help us learn this and understand this, Paul begins with a long list of what we could call potential separators. Surely it must be this. What is a separator? Something that's going to come in between. There's got to be something out there that separates us. So it begins with this long list. Tribulations and afflictions. That's stuff that we would face on the outside. And then he talks about distresses or stresses. That's the, that's the inside. Nope, those things won't separate us. Whatever you face out there, whatever you face in here, nope, that's not going to separate. And then he begins with what... He kind of turns up the heat a little bit with the level of pain or loss or maybe even the absence of basic necessities. Surely famine. What if you didn't have any food? Surely that would separate you. What if you were naked? Surely that would separate us. We're lacking the basics of, no, that doesn't separate us either. Well, then there's what? Persecutions? Dangers? The sword. What is that all a reference to? It's a reference to execution. A reference to execution. We, we hear every, every day, every day, I cannot believe the corruption. I cannot believe what the government is trying to push on us. Do, do you realize when these words were written? Do you realize what the government was like? When they were burning Christians alive, like for what we were doing right now, you deserve death just for what we were doing. Lifting our voices, gathering together to sing and listen to the preaching of the word of God. You die. Surely the sword will separate us. No, it won't. As a matter of fact, he actually quotes, go back to the Psalm chapter 44. Christians, you and I were like sheep. Soft and fluffy and adorable. You ever see a sheep run? It's like, oh, it's so adorable. Sheep were raised, yes, for a wool, but they were also raised to be sacrificed. Remember that? Remember the priest's role? Yeah, dad, bring in the, bring in the sheep. Bring in the lamb. Because it's going to die to atone for our sins. Yeah, I just can't believe the oppressive 
the oppressiveness of this government. I just cannot believe. Wait, wait a minute. You're, you're here. You're free. People died for our freedoms. We could worship like this. Christians are like sheep. We are not exempt from death. We are meant to offer our lives as sacrifice. Nothing separates us. As a matter of fact, he goes on, and he, I love this phrase, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Just pause on that for a moment. This is a very interesting term. I'll take conqueror all day long. No, 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 no. You're more than that. I, at some level, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, kind of step aside. I see like two little boys on a playground. I won. I'm the winner. No, no, no. I'm more of a winner. It makes no sense. You're a conqueror. No, I am more than a conqueror. Not only are we given the means to what? To endure, which we need. Not only are we given the means to be assured of his love, nothing separates, but more than a conqueror means what? God, in absolute sovereign control, has the ability and oftentimes chooses to use the horrible and the horrendous circumstances in our life, in your life. And God, the author, has the ability, as we're more than conquerors, to take the horrendous, to turn them around, and actually use the wretched, and the ruin, and the wrecks, for our good, and ultimately for his glory. You understand that? That's, that's more than winning. That's more than a conqueror. Because even the difficult, horrible, horrendous, God says, no, 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 no. What? Don't look at the thread of the pain, of the suffering, of the anguish. God is doing something here as a result of martyred Christians. Five young men, five Young husbands, five young fathers were martyred for their faith so that an entire people group can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is one story of thousands upon thousands upon thousands. One couple went off to the mission field, spent their entire life preaching the gospel, with what? Almost no fruit. They, 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 they saw almost nothing. And God took them out. And as a result of that one seed that was planted. That one seed that was sown. Great fruit. Great blessing. You see, God takes the horrible circumstances... And he turns them around for our good, ultimately for his glory. Now, it seems as well with this list that I just read, it kind of, I would think that they're all things that we could kind of see up close. Or they're tangible things, physical. I would say that they're almost things that we would look at as a, as a micro level. Famine, sword, nakedness. Those things that we can kind of look at. Now what he does in the latter part in this long list is he kind of backs up and he kind of like pans back and takes the wide angle panoramic view. And, and, and he, he, he addresses things that I would say is at the macro level. He addresses 
Everything. And there's the last part of this. I am sure that neither death nor life. And so it's all like bigger subjects. Angels or rulers. Things present, things to come. Powers. Even height or depth. Like he's beginning to pan back to things that we can't fully even comprehend. Surely there's something. In a sense, he's challenging. Go ahead. Line it up. Dream it up. Think it up. There must be something out there. Nothing. There's nothing. Look, 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 you don't look at words. You listen to words, right? Listen to this. There is nothing in all of creation. You, you can't really get much... You can't get much more of a panoramic than, than, okay, a sword here, or persecution, or a bad day. I'm hungry. Okay, pan back. There is nothing in all of creation. Why? Because the love of God is best, bigger, beyond. Life or death, doesn't matter. Height. How high, how wide, depth, doesn't matter. Something present, no. Something like really far in the future, doesn't matter. Love, the love of God is beyond any measurement. Put the yardstick away. Stop trying to be God to figure out what, like, what your life is. No, 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 no. We live knowing that nothing will ever separate us from the, the love of God. That nothing will ever take you out of your Father's hand. What do we do with this? Two things in closing. Number one, be comforted. Just be comforted. Stop, stop listening to the accusing lies that you tell yourself or the accusing lies from the enemy. Stop, stop condemning yourself. Stop, stop living in constant fear. Like, there's got to be something out there lurking. And what? Start living as one who knows Christ is interceding on your behalf. And what? Live as more than a conqueror. Like, here's a conqueror. No, 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 no. God calls us to live more than that. So just be comforted with this text. And finally, what? Wake up to it. Be, be convicted. See the areas where you and I have fallen short in. The, the questions and the doubts and the fears and the complacency and the laziness and the ingratitude and the inaction. And allow the Holy Spirit at this very moment to awaken and quicken your, your heart and your soul and your spirit to say, you know what? You're sitting on your butt when you're supposed to be working and serving. You realize that's what it says. To live as one who is called. And what? Nothing separates. Nothing separates in all of creation. I think the church at some level has almost been lulled. And dulled. From truth like this. Where, where we don't like. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Like we don't just do that and just kind of like wander out. No, we, we, we race out 
We race out with what I have learned today, that regardless of the fact that I am a wretched sinner, that there is no one, I can't condemn, I can't accuse, the enemy can't accuse, that Christ has been victorious through the work on the cross and the tomb, and I am his, and Jesus Christ intercedes on my behalf, like he knows my name. And we live, ignite it on fire with this truth. People, as I reminded those little ones this morning, we are, we are, we are little tiny broken pieces of clay. They had a function, okay, and they were dug up because they were buried and forgotten a long time ago. And we have a little tiny window to speak of love that is beyond measure. To live knowing that we're loved by a God who will never separate us. Nothing in all of creation. May we be comforted and may we be convicted this morning with that truth. Father, we are amazed at who you are. We need your help. I need your help as we seek to live in full obedience and faithfulness on fire for you. Lord, help us to not get swallowed up with the minutes, with the tiny struggles. Help us to see that you are, you are weaving a beautiful tapestry for our lives. Even difficult circumstances can be for our good and ultimately always for your glory. God, help us to look at life through your lens, not our own. We confess, and I confess, Lord, I love the comfort. I love the order and structure. And Lord, I just pray that all of that would be for naught. That we would live in full obedience and full surrender to you. Help us, empower us with a renewed reminder of your immeasurable love. In your name we pray, amen.